From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. We start, though, taking a look at a trend that really started to take off this past couple of years. More and more people are turning to co-ownership when it comes to buying a home. However, there is a petition. It has been filed in B.C. Supreme Court, and it shows what can happen when things go sideways. This is a petition by one of the owners in a co-owner agreement asking for a court ordered sale of the property, talking about a $3 million property in the city of Vancouver. In the petition, which has been filed in court, it cites the two parties can no longer get along and can no longer share the living accommodation. Even though they don't actually live in the same part of the house, they have separate entrances and are quite separate. This petition includes allegations of hostile and aggressive behavior and goes on to list some pretty... uh, Well, scenarios you probably wouldn't want to live with. So what do people do and what do they need to keep in mind when entering into agreements like this? Noam Dolgan is joining me now, the founder. He is a realtor, also the founder of the Collaborative Home Ownership website. Noam, thank you so much for being with us today. Happy to be here. Thanks for talking about this topic again. Well, I think last time we talked to you, we talked about your website, Collaborative Home Ownership, and the fact that even without actual numbers, anecdotally, it did look like more people were going down this road and uh, being co-owners of homes. Have you seen that being an increasing trend? Absolutely. We have had, we had a number of groups come together through our our network this fall. We sold a property we're definitely seeing a, a continual growth um, and more and more surveys have been coming out. There was just one in the States this week that said that 15% of people now co-own their property uh, and another 48% would consider it of non-owners. So we're, we're definitely seeing this continue to grow. Uh, And one of the reasons we're talking about this today, not only because it's continuing to grow, but a a court case has landed in BC courtroom. And this is a petition where it's a co-ownership agreement and things have not gone well as far as these two parties living in the same property. And one of the parties is now asking for the courts to to rule that the, the property can be sold so that they can go their separate ways. I know we talked about this before, about the importance especially if you're doing co-ownership with somebody that you don't know that well. Is this one of the things that people really need to think about before you get into this? Yes, absolutely. Now, we have to remember, of course, that 99 plus percent of co-ownerships go on really well, and those ones aren't the ones that make the the news. Um, But in general, the the whole point of CoHoBC and the whole premise behind this is that we're trying to help people set them up for success so it never comes anywhere near this point and a proper legal co-ownership agreement that dictated how one party might exit an agreement would have avoided all these problems in the first place so this is exactly what we're trying to do to set people up so that they have all these answers they've talked about in advance they have a plan for exit because exit is going to happen whether it's through inheritance in the situation and a death or through, you know, professional transfer, financial challenges, or just not getting along, as we also see in this case. The list goes on. 
So planning for that in advance really uh, avoids the challenge ever getting to a place like this. Uh, and I think, too, uh, and the, the Vancouver Sun has covered this uh, story and as well, uh, like I said, it's kind of going through the courts. But I think what was a bit surprising about this case was it's a, it's a large property and the people involved weren't even living uh, really under the same roof. There was a, a laneway house. There were there were different places for them to be. But it sounds like things things just didn't they just did, were not compatible uh, living in the same property or on the same property. But like you said, this is not the norm. This is what appears to be an extreme case. Are you seeing people, though, that don't really think about that, don't look at all the possibilities and make sure they're really ready for co-ownership before they get into it? Uh, unfortunately, yes. We get calls from people after the fact saying, you know, we, do, we bought a house with friends or family, and now we realize we should do our due diligence and certainly happy to connect them to, to right people better late than never. Um, but it's definitely always better to do it from the beginning before you go and purchase, before you even start seriously looking at housing to make sure you're having those serious questions of what are you going to do uh, if the property gets inherited by, you know, an heir or, you know, a friend. What are you going to do if, when it's time to go your separate ways? Or what are you going to do if, if unfortunate things happen, like someone gets into financial trouble? So planning for all that stuff before you even start shopping and working with, with people like us who understand those questions can really avoid any potential problems. Uh, because and when you talk to uh, about finances and things do change and people's uh, situations change and uh, I would uh, I mean court battles are never inexpensive so uh, I would think too that this would for many people hopefully this would be the last case uh, scenario or the last uh, the last uh, thing that they that they're doing in that the, the parties here are also going to be spending a lot of money going through the court system. Uh, unfortunately, yes. And Yes, hiring a lawyer in advance and, and writing up a, a specialized legal agreement for yourself is a cost up front, but it can save you a lot in the long run. It's definitely an insurance policy worth, worth getting. When you see these types of agreements becoming more popular, do you see it mainly, though? Is it more popular with people who already have an existing friendship or maybe are family members? Is that happening more than than complete strangers? Or are you seeing kind of both or, or different types of scenarios? Uh, we're certainly seeing all scenarios. The family and the friends is, is certainly happening a lot more. It's just much easier to go through all the steps involved than connecting with strangers. Um, but we have really seen a growth in this idea of selling a share in your home, whether you're a retiree looking to kind of take out some equity or you are an existing co-ownership kind of splitting up because one wants to go the separate ways or you're a couple splitting up and one of the people wants to maintain you know, access to the historic family home. So we're seeing multiple models there where people, strangers are coming together through the sale of shares in property. And and certainly we are seeing groups come together, but it's it, putting stranger groups together to to acquire something collectively can be a bit of a, a matchmaking challenge, as you can imagine. I, I saw it referred to, or it has been referred to a few times, uh, kind of like a marriage in that if you're going to enter into a co-ownership, even when you have your own areas of the home, maybe you even have your own entrance, that you still need to really think about the the quality, the traits maybe that you would get along um, and things like that. Is that. Is that a fair comparison, you think, that it is a marriage of sorts? It's absolutely a marriage, and we describe it that way in our guide to co-ownership. And the stages you go through to, to make this work really is a dating engagement and then marriage process. So in the dating phase, 
you date housing and you date potential partners. So, you know, what type of housing is out there in your budget that fits your needs and that has secondary suites that would fit other partners' needs, things like that, so you can understand what's available to you and find the right partner who who fits that housing. It's not always, you know, obviously someone who's the same as you. It could be someone with complementary needs. Uh, and then you date people. You chat with them about what their vision is, their timelines, you know, their goals, how much social interaction they want, how much collectivity they want, um, how late they tend to stay up at night and make noise, all sorts of things. So then once you feel like you have a good partner and a good vision, then you go into engagement. Then you really get deep. You you start talking with a lawyer at that stage and draft your ownership agreements. You go to get your financing squared away. You talk about everything. You unveil your financing. So you're going to be on a mortgage together and you really go deep. And then the marriage, you buy the thing, you get committed and you have this legal agreement, which is much like a prenuptial that you know basically specifies what will happen when it's time to go your separate ways. And unlike a marriage that's death to you part, you know this will end. It might be all the way till death, but maybe it's just five years, 10 years, and you plan for that. It's a really interesting way of looking at it. And and given the time period as well, uh, that you know it's going to end, I, I guess, do you have a, a better or kind of an out in that a mortgage might be up for a renewal in five years or maybe 10 years, depending on what the parties have agreed on? And and is that kind of the time when people reassess and try and figure out, okay, is this working? Is it not? Or is there a general time, even a time frame that generally works for these types of agreements? I mean, we see most co-owners in this for a five to 25-year time frame. Um, and we do meet people who've been doing this since the 70s and are still living together. And we see people who, after five years, have built some equity, their life situations have changed, and they're ready to, you know, to move on. So most agreements will set a five-year minimum or maybe a three-year minimum before you can force a sale in a home. Um, you can always separate a mutual agreement or potentially sell off your share. Um, but you know you don't want to force your partner out of their house in the first three to five years because emotionally and economically that can be a challenge. Um, but we generally see, I've seen you know seven to 15 years is probably the average life expectancy of a co-ownership agreement. All right. Well, it is a, a very interesting one, and especially given this court case, and again, an extreme example, thankfully. Noam, thank you so much for joining us once again. Great to have you back on the show. Happy to be here, and anyone can reach out to us via cohobc.com. And uh, thank you for covering this topic again. It is Wednesday afternoon, and that means it is time for us to check in with Claire Newell, founder and president of Travel Best Bets. Claire, good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Jill. And, you know, just as I came on um, about five minutes before I came across the fact that the Henley Passport Index has just come out again for 2024, and I wanted to quickly touch on it, but I know it's a busy week, um, and there was a lot to go through, but um, I just wanted to quickly share that Canada is ranked seven on that list. Uh, it means that Canadians can travel visa-free to 188 countries. Hasn't really changed much. Um, but what this Henley Passport Index uses is data from IATA, which is the International Air Transport Association, for its measurements. So it covers 199 passports and 227 destinations. The, the top spot was actually shared this year for the first time by six countries. Four are European, France, Germany, Italy, and Spain, and two Asian countries, Japan and Singapore, top the list. 
um, bottom of the list hadn't changed from last year. Afghanistan, they can only visit 28 countries. So they're the, considered the least powerful passport. So Canada doing well. We share a seventh spot with Hungary and the U.S. Nice. That's uh, good to hear that uh, the Canadian passport is still uh, a very good one to have. Yeah, and I think it's really, really important um, to remember a couple of things. You and I chatted about the fact, New Year, go check your passports, make sure that they haven't expired. It's always a good time to just kind of do that as a step because you don't want it to expire if you're really wanting to go somewhere and all of a sudden there's a heck of a deal and then you can't go because you need to renew your passport. Um, And the other thing is to remember that there are a lot of places where you do still need a visa or an ETA, which is an electronic travel authorization. The best place to check check for that is travel.gc.ca. That's the Canadian government's website and they'll give you all of the information. And there's lots of different things that... um, are listed on there. Another thing, another website you might want to go to is called passportindex.org. I love this site. You go and you click the Canadian passport and then you click once it's up on the screen, like the picture of the passport, you click dashboard and you can actually see by country in alphabetical order if you need a visa, if you don't, what you need to do. And it's super handy. All right, that is a good to, and a good reminder. Always be checking the expiration dates on those uh, if you do have that passport and you're traveling. Uh, I saw this story as well, Claire, and I'm sure you've been asked about it so much. The uh, American, uh, sorry, the Alaska Airlines uh, mid-air blowout of that door and what that means moving forward. Yeah, so Boeing has another um, kind of PR mess on their hands having to deal with this. It's obviously affected their stock. But for us as Canadians, um, Alaska Airlines does fly into Vancouver. So there may be some Canadian travelers who are booked on routes that are affected by the grounding of Alaska Airlines flights or United Airlines flights. Both of them have quite a few aircraft that are this type of aircraft in their fleet. Canadian Airlines don't have any of that version in their fleets, which is really good news. Um, But just double check because WestJet has an interline agreement with Alaska Airlines and Air Canada has a code share deal with United. So you might have some flights affected. I've heard a couple of people who do. So just double check that your flight's on time. Um, They have been having to shuffle a lot of the flights, especially um, Alaska Airlines. They have 65 of those aircraft in their fleet, 28% of their fleet. Hmm. All right. So that would explain why it's, uh, well, a big deal what happened, but also the fallout and what's happening moving forward. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we should also talk about growth <laughs> because Canada Jetlines, one of the ultra low cost carriers in, in the country, have expanded their fleet. They've uh, leased two additional A320 aircraft. Those are going to be deployed to serve um, the hotspots. There's lots of demand for hotspots at the moment. So Mexico, Jamaica, Florida, and Las Vegas routes. They also um, do some charter servicing for, for different organizations. So that those aircraft will be used for that as well. But they are scheduled for delivery of those aircraft in Q2 of 2024, which means, I mean, they have, you know, signed the ink and they want those birds in the air is pretty, pretty quickly. All right. So it's always it's good news, isn't it, though, when we talk about the expansion of fleets and we've certainly talked about travel getting back to pre-pandemic uh, levels and more and more people traveling. Yeah, it, it is a good news story. Um, I, I'm seeing that that. You know, 2023 was a rough year. So much demand. Um, Not all the airlines and the airports and Afghan had the staff. Um, There weren't as much capacity. So more, not as many seats 
to certain destinations. That is changing in 2024. It'll only get better into 2025. So we're starting to see, I mean, a prime example is all-inclusive vacations. We didn't see anything at this time of the year, like in January of 2023, under $1,000. It just did not happen. And, you know, this year, I'm looking at my screen right now, and there's a whole bunch under $799. Hmm. So um, the deals are are coming to certain destinations where there's capacity. So that's really, really good. Um, I do want to quickly t- talk about um, some things, some countries where the uh, documentation has changed. Um, one that is a lot of people love, especially because there's a nonstop flight between uh, Vancouver and Istanbul, Turkey. Turkey is no longer requiring North Americans to obtain visas to enter their country. That has just changed. Um, Brazil uh, it was used to be when I visited years ago, you had to basically give your left arm. I mean, they needed bank account information and all sorts of things. They have gone from an in-person visa program to what they're hoping to get set up is a, as an e-visa system. It's delayed. So they haven't completed the implementation of it. But the country doesn't want to interfere with high season. And that includes carnival celebrations, which are in February and March. So um, Canadians won't need even an e-visa, any visa at all, until April the 10th of this coming year. And then by that point, they're hoping that their e-visa system will be up and running. And then as of January 4th, so just last week, all passengers traveling to Kenya will now be required to have a valid ETA, electronic travel authorization. It basically replaces their old visa system. Um, Great news for me because um, I've got a massive trip, one of the biggest trips of my life with my family um, in August, and we are flying into Nairobi, Kenya, and it's now just going to cost $30, and um, it can all be done online. <laughs> Up until now, it was not that way. My husband always shakes my shakes his head. He said, you, you will jump through hoops. You do all kinds of paperwork. You'd you know, give away the firstborn if you had to, if it meant you could visit a place. <laughs> but it just shows you how important it is to stay up to date with what you need to visit a country because it is constantly changing. Uh, exactly. And nice to hear, though, that uh, it is getting a little easier, a little streamlined. Uh, let's uh, talk about one more before we get to the deals. And I know we've touched about on this before, but kind of going in the other direction, there are also places that are going to be more expensive this year. Yeah, I tried to make a little list for you, and I'll try and go through it quickly because it's a lot to cover. But there are some destinations that will be more expensive to travel in 2024 fees and taxes and things that won't seem like a lot, like they're just maybe a few um, from, you know, between $5 and maybe $10. But the money in most cases is going to cultural and environmental conservation, maybe to deal with the impacts of over tourism or to support sustainability initiatives. Places like Amsterdam, there's going to be a city tax there for hotels that's going from 7% to 12.5%. Valley, starting February the 14th, if you're a non-Indonesian visitor, so any Canadians visiting will pay roughly $10 per person. That's going to cultural and environmental conservation. Barcelona is implementing a tourism tax. Um, uh, Valencia, Spain also uh, putting in their own tourism tax. So if you're visiting either of those cities in Spain, Greece has just announced a new tax on tourists for 2024. Basically, that's going to help pay for the forest fires last year and the flooding damage. Um, it's gonna The new fee is going to partially replace their bed tax. Iceland um, is also uh, implementing a fee. The exact amount is still yet to be determined. That's going to fund sustainability initiatives in Venice, as we've been talking about for a long time. 
They are going to start charging day trippers five euros to enter the city if you're not staying overnight. There's some exemptions if you're spending money there or you're a student or you're um, a worker. But that's all going to the impacts of over-tourism. So uh, we'll, st- we'll start to see more of this, and I'll keep you posted uh, when I hear, hear more, more being put into place. All right. Let's get to the deals. What deals do you have today? We'll have a last-minute deal. Uh, in my books, it's not that last minute, but it's 12 days from now, January the 22nd. If you can leave that day, I found a deal to the Riviera Maya. So flying into Cancun, going a little south, air in seven nights in a four-star beachfront all-inclusive resort. There's actually a couple of resorts to choose from. Just dropped to $6.99. The taxes are $6.14. They're almost the same. Again, the taxes don't change. Um, but when they kind of get similar, you know it's hit rock bottom. Um, an amazing itinerary doing the Icelandic fjords and the British Isles. I love this itinerary. You can get more details online. But July the 12th, it is a 16-night cruise with a 60 US dollar onboard credit. Worth mentioning that this is round trip from Southampton. So you could do a nonstop flight to London, um, which is often not only convenient, but there's a lot of different flights from Vancouver. So it's more affordable than a lot of places in Europe. The, the 16 night cruise, 1489, the taxes of 368. And I'm putting on a bucket list trip doing Peru and Machu Picchu. Um, Machu Picchu for me was one of those, you know, the lump in my throat when I first saw the Citadel. I was sitting beside my dad. I'll never forget it. I did a seven night trip. So you can do, this is a seven night trip, including all airfare. So this is between March 12th and November 21st, just select dates in there. Air, seven night guided vacation, all of the internal flights you're going to need, the breakfast daily, the sightseeing, the transfers, 24.29 tax included. That is a steal to see. Um, that bucket list destination. All right. I know uh, all the details on that are on the website. Claire, we will leave it there, but thank you so much and talk to you soon. Talk to you next week. One thirty-four on this Wednesday afternoon. Well, taking a look at something that is happening in the United States, but it certainly is getting a lot of attention elsewhere. Alabama will be allowed to put an inmate to death with nitrogen gas, and this is scheduled to happen later this month. The ruling came from a federal judge earlier today, and this clears the way for what will be the nation's first execution under a new method that the inmates' lawyers criticize as both cruel and experimental. This ruling came from U.S. District Judge R. Austin Huffaker rejecting Alabama inmate Kenneth Eugene Smith's request for an injunction to stop that scheduled execution. It is scheduled for January 25th, an execution by nitrogen hypoxia. Smith's attorneys said that the state is trying to make him a test uh, subject for an untried execution method method, and it is expected they are going to appeal the decision. Well, joining me to talk a little bit more about this is Deborah Denno, professor of law at Fordham University Law School, also an expert on the methods of execution. Deborah, thank you so much for being with us this afternoon. Thank you. What are your thoughts on how this has played out and with that federal judge ruling earlier today? Well, I regret the 
federal judge's ruling, I think it's a huge mistake. And uh, I think it's important to put nitrogen hypoxia in the context of the fact that the United States has had six different methods of execution. This is the sixth method of execution that we've tried. And the reason I emphasize that is they've all gone horribly wrong. Uh, you know, a politician or a court will say that the method's going to work because of an accident or it's been used or et cetera, electrocution, lethal gas, lethal injection. They've all been horrible. I know this is something that you have studied and looked at as well. And is, is that what led to even having this discussion and this coming into the court for a federal court to make a ruling that this was originally put forward as compared to the other methods, like you just said, that this would potentially be a better way? Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, with every, all six, it's always been uh, hanging is barbaric, let's switch to electrocution. Electrocution is barbaric, let's switch to lethal gas. Lethal gas is not working, it's disastrous, let's switch to uh, lethal injection. And lethal injection we've had for 40 years, it's been, it's been horrifying. It's almost, it's only gotten worse over the 40 years. So this is state's efforts out of desperation to to keep the death penalty going in the United States uh, with yet one more untested method of execution. Do you find or do you feel like they get enough attention or this part of the, the debate or conversation or, or how you want to frame it? Does it get enough attention in that? I know when it's a high profile case and I think a lot of people might uh, automatically go to the execution of Ted Bundy as, as one of the higher profile cases and he was executed uh, on the electric chair. Does it get enough uh, uh focus or does it get enough is there enough discussion do you think about this about the fact that the issues that you have just raised and groups raise when looking at what is actually happening I don't think there is enough focus or attention. I think some people just don't quite get it. You know, I, I was talking to a journalist some months ago, and they, they in talking to that person, they didn't, someone very bright and, and engaged, et cetera, uh, didn't, they, they said to me, I don't think this is ever really going to happen. And I think that's, that's what happens, number one. And number two, um, I think people confuse the execution process, you know, the fact that lethal gas or this nitrogen gas is going to be used with the death penalty itself. And, uh, and so they conflate the two issues when, in fact, this is a wholly separate issue on how we go about executing people. Is it also the, the question of execution itself in that some states still allow it, some states don't? Certainly, uh, that is a huge debate also, isn't it? Uh, that's an excellent point. I mean, it's really only a hand, handful of states here in the in the United States that execute with any any sort of frequency. Uh, you know, even with the other death penalty states, execution is very rare. So, uh, so you have these states going forward, such as Alabama, uh, even though they've had disastrous executions. I think also, you know, memories are short. You know, I've been studying this for over thirty years. I know this is just a continuing theme. Uh, that's been going on since 1898 in this country. But for other people, it's just everything is viewed very discreetly. This execution, the next one, et cetera.
Do you think also the reason maybe it doesn't get the scrutiny or it doesn't get that level of of people even being outraged by this is that people will look at these and say, and and maybe this just is a way of rationalizing it. But again, uh, to use the Ted Bundy example or some of the other uh, examples of executions, that uh, it is used when we're talking about uh, some some pretty brutal and violent uh, people, and that people might not be all that sympathetic if it's not a a perfect way or a pain-free way of doing this? Well, that's right. I mean, look, I mean, we're dealing with a... a a uh, population of people who've been convicted for murder, etc. Uh, and there may not be a lot of sympathy uh, about something like that. At the same time, you know, th- this is our Eighth Amendment of our Constitution, you know, against cruel and unusual punishment. So nobody's asking, including myself, for pain-free or perfect execution. Uh, we're just trying to say that this could be a horrifying disaster. In 2022, of all the lethal injection executions, conducted, we know for a fact that 35% were botched uh, because we, we had an opportunity. There were journalists there who could, who could see that, that it was that high. Uh, and, and the executioners weren't even trying to botch the executions. They just were, could not do it. And what does botched mean in this scenario in that? Is it a, a certain level of pain or the time it takes? How do, how do you classify something? A as- botched execution is something that's not going on as, as it should be, as, as they predict. And when I say they, the Department of Corrections or the executioners. Uh, Kenneth Smith, as you know, was there was an attempted execution on, on him on November uh, 22nd of 2023. Uh, they tried, uh, executioners tried in Alabama uh, for over four hours to try to kill him, and they couldn't do it. Since 2009, there have been five lethal in- attempts at lethal injection executions where the inmates survived uh, because the executioners simply could not execute them, and the inmates just went back to their cells. So that's a sign that had never happened before 2009 with the lethal injection. Hmm. And so what changed from from pre-2009? Well, before 2009, just about every state was using the same three-drug protocol. Those executions, by the way, were also, there, were, there was a high botch rate, uh, but the same, the same drugs were being used. And after 2009, uh, the first drug, sodium thiopental, which is the drug that makes somebody unconscious, uh, was no longer available in the United States. So all hell broke out loose among states. They were trying to find uh, an acceptable sedative. And that just made it so that many different kinds of drugs were being used, that every lethal injection uh, basically has been an experiment with departments of corrections trying to execute people and not being successful at it because of different drugs, uh, untrained people, etc., And is it because you think, again, we're talking about uh, prisoners, we're talking about criminals uh, who have been sentenced to death in that I I know here in Canada where uh, we don't have uh, the death penalty, we do have MAID, which is medically assistant, medical assistance in dying. And it's something that is is being expanded. That too is a bit controversial, but it is considered a humane way. And and people who have terminal illnesses or who opt for this, uh, it's considered a very humane way 
of of dying. So it's it's not as though it can't be done. But do you think there just isn't the will to try and find a way similar to that when we're talking about this happening in the United States? Well, that's right. I mean, assisted assisted dying in in uh, in Canada and the Amster in in the Netherlands, other kinds of countries that 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 have that, and uh, or even Oregon in in the United States. It's a it's a different process entirely. Um, you know, there you you will have a medical doctor or a trained person administering the medication. When we're talking about lethal injection execution in the United States, it is being it's a punishment. It's taking case place in a prison with totally untrained people. Uh, some of these people are volunteers and uh, in the prison they have no no uh, training whatsoever and uh, and they're just not equipped. There's not the, the, the knowledge or the kind of oversight uh, that you would of course have if, if you were uh, uh, administering uh, some kind of um, uh, you know, drug to a terminally ill person. It's, it's apples and oranges, basically. Right. So, and so going back to the, the ruling in Alabama, so if this goes ahead, this would be the first time in, I believe, in the United States, this would be the first execu- execution order under this new method, which has has been very criti- uh, criticized as well, using nitrogen gas. Uh, is, do you think that this is going to go ahead or is there has there been so much pushback and, and so many questions raised about this? Could, could it be uh, postponed again and, uh, to have that, that conversation continue? Yeah, I mean, there are several things. I just want to emphasize this is the first time in the world this method of execution uh, is being used, number one. And it's being used because um, even though, you know, you rightly said that people don't care about lethal injection or these people, it, it's being used because there have been so many problems with lethal injection. You know, if, if Alabama wasn't having problems and they have had countless problems, uh, then they would have they wouldn't have ever introduced nitrogen hypoxia uh, into their statute. So they're doing this because of all the hang-ups with, with, uh, with lethal injection. But number three, to go to your question, it certainly could be stopped. That's a, that's a possibility. But, you know, this is an execution that's two weeks away. Uh, and so, you know, for right now, um, it, it's going forward. All right. Well, we'll leave it there for today. Deborah Denno, thank you so much for joining us and for talking more about this today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.